Welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast, brought to you by Limitless Estates, where Kyle and Lolita talk to top experts and seasoned passive investors in the business to help provide clarity and key insights to keep you safe on your journey to financial freedom. Our goal is to help you get educated on how to create passive income for you and your family by using real estate as your vehicle. Now, here are your hosts, Kyle and Lolita. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast. I'm your co-host, Lolita, also joined by Kyle. Today on the show, we have Brent Kawakami with us. Brent, great to have you on our show. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Good. Uh, Before we get into the interview, here's a little bit about Brent. Brent is a Hawaii native who first started investing in real estate in 2012 by buying, rehabbing, and renting single-family homes in the Dallas, Texas area. However, Brent eventually sold these properties to move into the multifamily space, where he is now currently invested in 450 multifamily units in Texas, Georgia, and Ohio. So we'll talk about his transition and the key members who helped him get there. So with that being said, Brent, could you please tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you currently do? Cool. Thanks. Um, So like you said, uh, I was born and raised in Hawaii. And I was very much like the the typical, hey, you know, go to school, get good grades, go to college, get a job, all that jazz. So that's exactly what I did. Um, I went to the University of Texas, Austin, um, got an engineering degree, got a good job. And I was very much like not the entrepreneurial guy. I was like, hey, I'm going to work along, you know, climb the corporate ladder type of thing. And then a couple of years into my career, I kind of got that that itch. And then inevitably, what most folks do is they read that little purple book, right? Which <laughs> <laughs> that ends up being like the 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 gateway drug, right, or the red pill that gets you into this stuff. And so I, I started getting into some other things. You know, I started experimenting with online businesses. Um, you know, buying dividend stocks, gold and silver. I got into if you heard of infinite banking, which I still do today. So I tried a lot of different things and inevitably um, settled on real estate, you know, because what you find when you start investing in all this stuff is, you know, there's some stat out there that like 90% of new millionaires are created through real estate or businesses. And Mm so inevitably there's, there's something there, right? So start down that path. And then, like you said, you know, got into single family and then I'm now focused on uh, multifamily investments. So great. Perfect. Thanks for the intro. So you rarely hear about passive investors having mentors or coaches, but that's a tool that served you well as an act from the active side. Do you think it would benefit passive investors by having a coach or a mentor? Yeah, definitely for sure. And I think there's a few different levels of, I guess, coach or mentor you can think of, especially when you're investing as passive. First one's obviously like you're doing your own um, education, right? So podcasts like this one, you know, reading books, you know, maybe you're going to meetups and meeting other people um, and and learning that way. And I think you can get a lot of good coaches and mentors that way, maybe not just necessarily personally, but I think you learn from people that way for it, right? Um, I think the second piece, especially as a passive, um, as a coach is, if you're a passive investor, you're investing in someone else's deal, right? As a deal sponsor, right? And to me, that deal sponsor really is a coach or mentor, to you, right? Because you have access to that person, right? You can ask them questions. 
you can dig into the details of, you know, they're probably sending you reports on stuff. You know, you have, it's, it's, you know, if you're investing a stock, right. And you're in Facebook, you're not going to be asking Mark Zuckerberg, you know, how the company's going or, you know, why they made this decision, that decision, right. with, you know, with, with, um, and we know we're talking about syndications and as a pacifist, you have access to that person. And so to me, I think that's a big um, piece of having a coach or a mentor and that, and then obviously as you grow, I think, you know, and you get to a certain point, having a formal coach or mentor, you know, to help you progress is, is great. Cause at the end of the day, you know, you want to find someone who's doing what you're doing and then copy them. Right. At the end mm-hmm. of the day, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel. So. How did you find and make a decision to choose your coach over, over others out there? Um, I think the biggest thing, and it sounds really cliche, but you know, you want to know, like, and trust someone, right? Whoever you do business with. And I think the biggest thing you know, when you're finding a coach or mentor is you have to actually, you know, obviously you're, you're, you're trying to get skills from them, right? You're trying to get knowledge. But at the end of the day, you have to like them and be aligned with their goals and interests, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like for me, one of the biggest things was, um, so I'm one of my coaches and mentors is um, uh, Mark Antonio Kenny uh, with Think Multifamily. And for me, a lot of it was, hey, they're focused on family values and involving their family and things and integrity and all these things are up front, which of course everyone likes to say, but for me, I felt that and got to know them and, and all those pieces together are ultimately what helped align the values. And so I think really at the end of the day, outside of the fact that you want a coach or mentor that's doing obviously what you want to do, you want to be aligned on the values and the integrity and the, all the pieces that you know fit with your personality. So. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I talk a lot about that is, you know, when people say, oh, you know, who should I go with or what should I do or, or where should I learn things? It really depends on the person's goals and their values, right? You want things to align because ultimately, if you go with a great coach or several, several great coaches out there, but if your values don't align with them, your personality doesn't align with them, you're not going to go anywhere. You really need to invest in someone that aligns with your goals, missions, visions, and values. It's so important. Yeah, exactly. Because it's it, at the end of the day, this stuff's a relationship business, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And you, you're, you know, you're you're going to business with people, you know, whether it's a coach or a partner or uh, you know, as a past investor, and so inevitably, all that alignment is what's going to help maintain the long term relationship and making it making it a successful one. So, yeah. How well do you want to know a sponsor prior to investing into one of their deals? Um, I think you it's very similar ideas that, you know, at the end of the day, you're giving someone else your money, right? For all you know, like they could take your money and run off to Mexico. <laughs> you know, it's happened. <laughs> yeah, it happens, right? Obviously, you hear all horror stories about this stuff. And inevitably, at the end of the day, I, it sounds cliche in the whole like, no, like and trust thing. But a bad sponsor can mess up a good deal, really, at the end of the day. And, and a good sponsor can rescue a bad deal. So I think mm-hmm. at the end, what you really want to do is have a sponsor that, again, you know, like and trust, and you know that they have your best interest as an investor. And when times get tough or when things happen, they're on top of things. Because at the end of the day, as a passive, you have very little control over the investment once you hand over your money. So, you know, if I'm handing 50K over to someone, I better better believe in them and, and appreciate that they know that what, what they're doing, right? So. Great. All investors have different goals. So some may want high risk, some may want low, some may want medium. 
What would a low invest, a low risk investor be looking for in multifamily? And then can you explain also what maybe a high risk investor would be looking at? Yeah. So obviously, you know, it depends on your risk tolerance and how, you know, what you or I feel as high risk or low risk may be different. Right. And so the way the analogy I've always heard is like, so if you or I like hop into uh, an NASCAR race car, right. There's obviously a lot of risk there, right. <laughs> if we're driving on the track, but if you or I hop, hop into the passenger seat and like Dan Kilpatrick or Jeff Gordon or whoever's driving cars and ours next to us, the level of risk goes significantly down, right? It's still risky activity, but it goes down a lot. And I use that analogy to say, it's the same thing with all this real estate stuff, right? And inherently it's a risky activity. Um, but inevitably, if you're with a sponsor who, again, has done this before or any trust, that will help whatever level of risk of the deal itself, you know, dollar out. Now, um, with that said, from a, you know, if you're looking for really more of a low risk um, investment, so I'm focused on like bigger multifamily. So like stuff that's like 100 plus units and up. And that's a pretty popular space that, you know, a lot of your listeners are probably interested in. So kind of the, the golden egg that everyone's after is, you know, that, that stabilized deal, right? That deal that's, you know, it's 90% occupied, it's already cash flowing. Um, it's got a good, you know, debt service coverage ratio, all those types of things that, you know, hey, in a good location, obviously, and all those and all that. That's really sort of like the gold standard for, you know, a quote unquote, low risk investment. Um, I think the other part of it too is you want to find a deal like that that has some value add component, right? Um, whether that's hey they're below market rents or hey the, you know they they're missing X Y Z amenities or the management's really poor and you, you know you bring someone else in they can increase deficiencies. Those types of things on a stabilized deal give you additional opportunity to increase value and essentially help the risk of the deal go down. Um, you know, on the flip side. Oh, well, back to the other part too, on those types of deals that are stabilized, you know, you can get agency debt on it, meaning uh, Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, um, long-term fixed rate debt, which is, again, back to safety and, you know, um, conservative, being conservative. You're able to, you know, have a longer term so you can ride on any sort of recession or any sign of bumps in the road, right? You're on a fixed rate. And then the best part and a lot of the reason that people invest in multifamily is the fact that those types of loans are non-recourse as well. So again, all these factors that make for a, you know, a more um, conservative or low risk deal, um, like you said, um, you know, to high risk, obviously there's the, Hey, it's nobody's in it and <laughs> you can fix it up. And there's all that, obviously, you know, there's, I personally wouldn't do it. Um, you know, you have, I've seen properties where, you know, you have multiple down units. And when I'm down talking down, you know, it's like to the studs, you know, and there's leaks everywhere and you got to invest bunches and bunches of capital on it. But anything like anything else, it's, you know, higher risk, potentially higher reward. Um, so does that, does that answer the question? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it depends on where you go, but um, you know, higher risk, like you said, are going to project higher returns uh, and lower risk investments are going to produce a little bit lower risk. So it's really about your risk tolerance and, and how you want to spread that throughout. But I think you hit it on the head with stabilized versus unstabilized deals. Okay. I think the other thing to think about too, is like the market you're in as well. So like a lot of people nowadays are going out to more secondary tertiary markets, meaning not your, 
you know, your big, you know, your big uh, MSAs that, you know, the Dallas's, the Atlanta's, the, you know, even like your bigger cities, like, you know, LA, New York, blah, 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 blah. You're talking smaller, you know, smaller cities. So like, so I'm in Texas, for example, you know, you'll see people who are trying to buy investments, you know, in, if you know where Abilene is or Lubbock or Longview or Waco, these other smaller markets that, um, you know, don't have the huge population or potentially don't have the, the employment base, you know, um, to, you know, that's diversified. So that's another thing to think about, you know, when you're thinking about risk, right? You know, are you in a spot where, you know, it's a smaller population and everybody works at the one factory, right? <laughs> or the one industry, you know, if something happens to that, then obviously that could affect your investment versus being in maybe a more robust um, uh, MSA where, Hey, maybe there's like 10 different industries that all have a sizable, um, sizable contribution to that local economy. Well, that lowers the risk, um, potentially that's a, So that's another thing I think to think about, you know, as an investor, um, with risk is, you know, you know, we always hear real estate's location, 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 right? So. Yeah, absolutely. No, great point. And it's not just about the building itself um, and how it's producing. You can have a stabilized asset in a market that is just tanking and it's not going to do well, right? So yeah, great point. And uh, just for the listeners, you know, you've got the the major metros and then you've got secondary markets that still have good population, probably of 100K or more. And then when you get under that 100K mark is when you get into the tertiary markets. And, uh, you know, it's not that the tertiary markets can't work but they're definitely higher risk because they don't have the population and job growth of the major markets. Uh, but you still have to look into them, right? And some of the metrics and the demos are still there for those tertiary markets and they can still work out, but you just definitely have to do your due diligence. Yep, for sure. Okay, what type of equity splits do you typically look for in your passive investments? So, you know, when you, so most of the time when you see these, you know, these bigger multifamily deals, you see different equity spits as an example. So like a common one is 80, 20 being, meaning 80% of the equity is for investors, passive investors. And then 20% is for, you know, the general partners or the folks who are putting the deal together. <clears throat> to be honest with you, me as a passive investor, and I have, you know, I do invest passively. The equity splits, not as big a deal to me where I, I want to see a specific number because ultimately at the end of the day, it's your, tr- your actual return. What is your cash on cash return? And what is your total return? Um, you'll see people do stuff where it's like, Hey, it's just a straight 80, 20 split or Hey, we're doing a preferred return uh, with a 70, 30 split or 75, 25 split. And, you know, for your listeners um, who don't know, preferred returns, basically, you know, you'll see something like, uh, as an example, an 8% preferred return, meaning the first 8% on cash flow is given to investors forced before sponsors see a dime, just as an example. Um, you'll see stuff like that. I've seen deals from really experienced sponsors where they're taking like a 50-50 split or a 60-40 split, um, where, you know, they're getting a huge chunk of, of the equity and potentially bringing, you know, bringing none of their own money in. There's nothing wrong with that. At the end of the day, it's a matter of, hey, what are your individual returns going to look like? And all the factors that you mentioned for about risk, you know, not just, hey, I'm trying to hit some specific, you know, I have to see some sort of specific equity, you know, equity split in the deal. Does that 
Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, if you see a deal that's 80-20, but it's only a 10% return, and there's another one that's 50-50, and your return is 16%, you know, which one's a better deal? I mean, if they all pan out as said, you know, it's it's the latter. So uh, definitely, it doesn't always matter on what that equity split is. In your passive investments, do you prefer a preferred return, or is that something that you're open to as well? I think I'm open to it as well. Um, obviously, if you're so, if you're a passive investor, preferred returns just flat out in your favor, right? Because you're getting the first dollars essentially. And then what you want to see also is that it's cumulative, meaning that. So let's just say the deal you're investing in is an eight percent preferred return, right? If you get six percent that first year, then that two that's missing from the preferred return should carry over to the following year, um, ideally. Um, meaning cumulative so that you know it carries over because ultimately that's what's promised to you the tricky part and people get really excited about preferred returns which is great obviously but the part you don't think about is the fact that if it can potentially misalign the interests with the sponsor because ultimately if every deal is different right and we and we have projections that hey we're going to make like you said a a 10% return or whatever right but at the end of the day it, it's going to do a little better or a little you know a little worse right it's just it's it's a pro forma because it's a projection and if there's a preferred return a lot of times if you're not meeting that projection and it's carrying over like that you're essentially digging a hole for that sponsor <laughs> and mm-hmm. inevitably it can ascent almost in some cases misalign interest misalign interest because now as a sponsor well if i'm in the hole and i'm not making any money on this deal well potentially could my my focus my interests in making sure that deal performs kind of lagger potentially or i'm much more incentivized to sell right and you know sell that deal so that i can make i can make my money on the back end so again with a preferred return, obviously it's it's beneficial, but I, I would say again, it's sort of a you need to look at it deal by deal and it's not always the the best, you know, the best thing and you should only look for that in any deal you invest. Yeah, and it goes back to being with the right sponsor, right? If you have the if you have a sponsor that's gonna do the right thing and is gonna work as hard as he can or she can to get the job done, then that's one thing. But if you're going to do, if, if you're going to go with a sponsor who's all in it for the money and themselves, then yeah, preferred return doesn't always align um, interests. And you can certainly get in a situation where, you know, they're making decisions on their behalf and not on the investors. Yeah. So. Cause you know, and, and inevitably if, you know, I don't care who you are, if you're working for free all the time, <laughs> inevitably it's not very motivating. Right. Yeah. yeah. So very true. Yeah. So there's two different metrics that you see um, on uh, on deals, and it's cash on cash return and then average annual return. We won't talk much about IRR because it gets a little bit confusing, but we can use cash on cash and, and average annual return. What are the differences between those two numbers? Yeah, so cash on cash is, and that's the one most people like to focus on. It's essentially if I put my money in the deal, what is the actual return cash on cash that I'm getting on an annual basis from that money. So to make the math simple, if I invested $100,000 into this particular deal, then and the cash on cash return is 10%, I should be getting $10,000 on an annual basis from that from that from that investment. So that's cash on cash return. Total return accounts for the, or you said average annual, I'm sorry, annual return. So that takes into account your total return at you know, over the full cycle of the investment. So 
inevitably, ideally, you're going to have an investment that has cash on cash return throughout time as you're holding it. Let's just say a lot of deals are underwritten on a five-year a five-year hold period. Uh, again, that's pro forma, but it's underwritten that way. Ideally, you have a cash on cash component through each year of those five years, and then there's some sale event or some refinance event or whatever at the end of that five years where you exit the investment and you make dollars on the sale. And so that combined with your cash on cash return ends up being your total return. And if you annualize that over time, that's what that, that average annual return is. I know it gets a little crazy and a little mathematical, but yeah, absolutely. I just think uh, the most important thing there is you kind of want a good balance between those two numbers, because if you have a very low cash on cash return and a very high average annual return, they're banking on the sale of that property at the end of the investment. So you don't see a lot of your money until the back end. And that is a complete projection, right? It's all speculative. Now, there's a lot of data that's backed by that. But at the same time, there's, there's no guarantee that you're going to see that money. And so if it's weighted heavily on the back end, you need to be careful on that. And you want to make sure there's good balance between cash on cash and average annual return. Nope, I agree. I agree. I agree completely. Cool. So what kind of paperwork does a passive investor need to provide when investing in someone else's deal? So the first part is it depends on the type of deal, right? And so a lot of these bigger syndication deals, uh, they're put together under SEC 506 B or C guidelines. And so uh, long story short, there's obviously a lot of regulations and details you can get into it. But depending on the deal, if it's if it involves it allows sophisticated investors, meaning an investor who's not accredited, and accredited is defined by the IRS as someone who makes two hundred thousand dollars a year, or three hundred as a as a married couple, uh, with a million dollar or a million dollar net worth, um, not including your home. So that's an accredited investor. If you're not an accredited investor and the investment accepts sophisticated investors, then you have to have a pre-existing relationship with that particular sponsor, right? And you have to be able to prove that you're sophisticated, meaning, hey, I have the knowledge, I have the wherewithal to make this investment and understand it all. So before anything, you know, any paperwork <laughs> or anything like that, that is one key thing up front, you know, that, that you kind of have to, to check the box for. And I say all that because when it comes to paperwork, when you invest in one of these syndications, you're inevitably going to get a large document called a PPM which is a private placement memorandum. And it says all the scary things about this deal, right? You know, it's all the lawyer, the legalese of why you should not invest in this and you could lose all your money and blah, 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 blah. But as part of that, you're going to have, typically it's called an investor questionnaire where you're going to have to fill out all that information, right? You're going to have to fill out, hey, you know, I, you know, um, this is my occupation or this is how much money I have. Um, this is what makes me sophisticated. You know, I've, 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 you know, gone to classes, I've done other investments, all that type of stuff. And that's a part of all the paperwork um, that you're going to have to provide. Um, in addition, you're going to have to also, you know, in filling out all that stuff, if you're investing in an, as an entity. So like, say you're, you know, you have your LLC, um, you know, your trust or whatever, you're going to have to provide documentation of that entity as well um, to that sponsor for filing uh, with all that paperwork. So inevitably it, it ends up being a huge stack of paper. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully you can electronically sign it, <laughs> but um, 
that's that's kind of the gist of all the stuff you're gonna okay what about like background checks w-2s tax returns do passive investors typically have to show that type of documentation no typically not now if it is an accredited situation where um it's a 506c which meaning that the investment only takes accredited investors um and there's some background on it but essentially allows that investment to be publicly advertised as a part of that, the sponsor has to make sure they verify that you are you are indeed accredited. And so a lot of sponsors will use um, services to verify that separately with you. And that's the situation where, you know, you would potentially have to provide that type of information. Um, and then the other part, too, is back to like tax returns. I mean, you are going to have to, you know, provide your social, your social and all these types of things, because at the end of the day, you know, you're going to make money. It's an investment. You're going to make money. You're going to get taxed, you know, a, t- a K-1 with your tax return, all that type of stuff. So those, you have to be prepared uh, with all that information. Yeah, great. Uh, Lolita's going to take us into our final four questions now. All right, Brent. Uh, what is the one tool that you use in real estate investing that you could not do without? So um, I got two. So one is like a old school caveman style. <laughs> I, I carry a, a moleskin notebook wherever I go. Actually, I have it right here. <laughs> um, but I carry it around with me all the time. And I, what I do is it's, I got this from, if you listen to the MFCEO podcast um, with Andy Frizzella. Um, if you're offended by cursing, don't listen to it. <laughs> 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 but it's really great because um, it's very, you know, about entrepreneurship and motivation and those types of things. Well, he talks about this thing called the power five, where every day you write down the five, and it may be less and maybe more, but the five key tasks you need to do for that day. And so there's something to be said about like writing stuff you need to do and then crossing it off and marking. I don't know what it is, but mm-hmm. there's something mentally where you're actually doing that. And, you know, when you're actually checking the box and doing it and what that helps with is continue advancing every single day toward whatever, you know, ultimately your goal is. And so that's something I do um, that, you know, I, I couldn't do without. And the other thing, the other um, tool is actually, so Facebook Messenger is the one I like. So as part of like all this real estate investing, inevitably you're networking with a lot of people. And of course, if you're not on Facebook, you don't, you're not a real person, right? Hmm. <laughs> you don't exist. And so you know, as you're friending people and making contacts, you know, we all want to make sure we're staying in touch with people. And I love Facebook Messenger because I'm able to, you know, make contacts and just chat with people. Um, and what I like to do is, uh, I got this from the Art of Charm podcast, but if you, you know, every once in a while, I'll go through, go through that list of, of people. Hey, who haven't I talked to in a while, right? Who have I not connected with? Whether And then just reach out, you know, hey, was thinking of you, saw this old message, what's up, you know, or... And those types of things. And that helps kind of keep the conversation or keep, a, you know, top of mind and touch going. Because inevitably, as a part of all this real estate investing, again, back to, you know, with the cliche, like we said, you got to know, like, and trust the people. Inevitably, you can't build relationships with people unless you're connecting with them. So those would be the, the two tools I, I find I use a lot. Yeah, that's awesome. That's why I love that question so much, because I think we have yet to find um, an interviewer that uh, has that same tool. So super great. Uh, Can you tell us a story about your biggest mistake in real estate investing so far and uh, the main takeaway for our listeners? Um, So I'm going to harp back to my single family days on this one. (laughs) So my biggest mistake, and I know uh, y'all are fixing to get, um, get married here 
you know, in the near future. But it's, uh, I didn't listen to my wife on an investment decision. <laughs> <laughs> Noted. <laughs> Kyle, remember that? <laughs> this was back when I did single family. And um, I had I'd started getting into multifamily as a passive at first. And I was selling off my single families. And I had one of my houses that went vacant. And, you know, my wife was telling me, hey, you know, just, I don't know what it is, but I guess women probably have a better read on you than you do of yourself. And my wife was (laughs) like, you know, I think you should sell this thing, right? You know, just knowing me. And I was kind of the, I don't know if I was being lazy or if it was like, it was easy to just, hey, find a new resident, you know, a new tenant and put them in there. And I didn't listen to her. And of course, what happens, I end up with my worst tenant. Um, it wasn't that bad. I mean, she paid the rent and everything, but it was just a, it was just a headache dealing with, and I was self-managing everything. Um, and of course, what did I do? I ended up selling it, you know, not too long after. And I didn't take too much of a haircut. I mean, I probably would have made more, more money if I had sold it previously, but I'd say that was a, that was a mistake and a takeaway that I took. So listen to your, your other half, (laughs) (laughs) even if they're not, even if they're not, you know, knee deep in the in the real estate business because you know there's something to be said about having a a different read or emotional intelligence about Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I hear to always go with um your gut feel and so if that gut feel is coming from you know somebody like a significant other somebody that's looking out for your best interest then you should take their gut feel um as a consideration too right Yep, I'm just I'm 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 nudging Kyle. As <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm writing this down it's right now. Trust me, I'm, I'm listening to every piece of this. <laughs> well, you know, you're probably like just shaking your head. All right, I'm glad you said that. Right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, <laughs> Brent, what is it that you need to do now to grow your life to the next level? Um, I think for me, it's just continuing to do deals. Um, mm-hmm. It's a slow building process, and for me it's patience because inevitably we're all like trying to do this stuff and get money and, you know, and all that type of stuff, but you don't want to just do deals and do investments for the sake of doing investments, right. Or because you're, mm-hmm. you hate your job and you want to get out of it or, you know, Oh, my buddy got a, you know, got a new investment. I want to get into it. So for me, it's really having the patience to just continue, continue, you know, as a Warren Buffett will say, seeing pitches go by and not swinging, and and then event, mm-hmm. when the good one comes, you know, hitting a home run then. So for me, that's, that's the biggest thing. And it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's not easy. It's hard. <laughs> yeah. Love it. And uh, lastly, where can people find out more about you? Um, so you can find more about me. Uh, my email address is uh, brent at hellomultifamily.com. And then you can find out more about uh, our group. It's uh, Think Multifamily. So it's uh, thinkmultifamily.com. Good stuff. I think a lot of our listeners can relate to your story. And on the other side of things, uh, the listeners that are on the fence about seeking a mentor or doing their first passive deal, you may have given them that push to go for it. So really awesome stuff. Thank you for your time. And uh, we appreciate you being on our show. No, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks, Brent. All right. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the passive income through multifamily real estate podcast, and to get access to today's show notes and to previous shows, visit limitless-estates.com. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to the podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in again next week for another episode.